Coming up on a lively experiment, an epic week for Rhode Island's judiciary as Governor Raimondo makes some history-making selections and a spirited discussion about what to do with the increasing COVID rates here. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by For more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen-White, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us on this week's panel, historian and columnist Ed Acorn, attorney and former prosecutor Eva Marie Mancuso, and political strategist Rob Horowitz. Hello, everyone. We appreciate you spending part of your weekend with us. Well, two openings on the Rhode Island Supreme Court gave uh, Governor Gina Raimondo the opportunity to reshape that court, making it the first female majority ever. Another first, Superior Court Judge Melissa Long becomes the first person of color elevated to the high court. Eva, as our resident attorney who's practicing courts for years, um, let me go to you. Let me get your reaction, because this is a major shift on the Supreme Court. You know, I, I'm, I'm thrilled because I think that it's really important that the Supreme Court, like all courts, reflect the community. So um, I think it, I'm, I'm thrilled about that. I think Judge Long will be an excellent addition. And I think Aaron Lynch Prada will also be an excellent addition. They both bring very different um, balance to the court. Uh, Judge Lynch has been in private practice, which I think is extremely important because remember the court also regulates the practice of law. And it's very important that you have somebody who's a practitioner um, that understands what it's like to be out there working for a living. Um, Judge Long brings the the minority diversity issue to the court. And again, um, unlike the uh, other courts, the Supreme Court actually works together in that they discuss decisions and they, uh, they learn from each other and they they share information so i think it's i think it'd be both tremendous picks and tremendous women and of course um you know i think they'll they'll do a great job and there was never a question i think about aaron lynch prada's uh, uh credentials the issue was leaving uh the the revolving door in effect and the and the ethics commission seemed to take a pass on it i don't think that's ultimately going to be a stain on her but you know we've talked about it in the past the process itself of getting to be a nominee well, you know, I was um, I was on the I was on the shortlist for about eight years um, for different <laughs> judgeships, and I can tell you, I think the JNC is just one more level of politics. I don't think that it's the what the all the do-gooders talk about what it is. I don't think it works that way. I think you just lobby another level of 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 people and um, and look for votes uh, along the uh, the judicial nominating committee. So. Um, you know, I, I just don't think it, I don't think it means anything. I really don't. I think that as long as we get great people that go to the court, um, how they got there doesn't really bother me. I look at Judge Montebano. He's a terrific judge. And everybody had a lot to say about uh, how he got there. Richard Raspallo, the same way, a true gentleman, somebody who will listen to you, you know, as an advocate, that's all you want. You want to have a judge that's going to listen to you and give you your day in court. Ed, what about that? Yeah, I don't think the system's necessarily set up to choose the most qualified or the most uh, skilled people in, in, possible as judges. It's a political system, and, it's, and there's no right. way you're going to get right. rid of that. Um, I do think both of these are uh, 
deemed to be qualified choices, and I think they'll they'll do a good job. Rob, I agree, and I also think there is something to to, to be said. Assuming that a the attorney is well qualified, and I think we both said that that both both these folks are well qualified for people who have a political background. Now, clearly, back in the day when the legislature, you know, the General Assembly picked the Supreme Court, that was nutty, and, and that was way <laughs> too political. But, right. but if we remember the U.S., and to, to Eva's point, I think, which is these folks have to work together and having some political sense, along with principles, I think, is helpful. Look at some of our legendary Supreme Court justices, you know, Earl Warren, Hugo Black. Um, they, were, they were politicians first. Right. So if you get somebody who's principled, um, has a more broad gauge view, uh, I think that's helpful. Eva, one thing one I would thing. like to see is more of a pipeline for minority candidates to right. get into the court. The minority candidates are so well esteemed that they are immediately snapped up by uh, much more lucrative offers and so forth. So it's very difficult to fill the bench with uh, minority candidates. So I would like to see something like that happen. E Eva, one other thing I was thinking about, look, Judge Goldberg is going to be 70 in February. Um, uh, Chief Justice Sattel is 71, and Bill Robinson the, the, uh, is almost 80. So things are going to change, and I wonder this reshaping. Usually, you know, you get a justice here, you get a justice there. In the next couple of years, this, this court could be virtually changed over. And I wonder what you think about that, kind of the new blood versus the institutions and bringing the newcomers on, and a bit of a transition. I think it's I think it's terrific. I'm a big fan in everything of two and three generations working together because I think they inform from each other. Um, you know, you just mentioned uh, three senior justices, all who are just not only great justices, but great people. Um, I know, probably know Justice Robinson the best personally, and um, he just has the dignity of, of of a real gentleman and he also works hard. Justice Goldberg, um, I tried cases in front of her as a Superior Court judge. She's got both the grit from, you know, from the boots on the ground up. Um, and, you know, again, I think she'll be a great teacher um, to these younger women coming on to see, okay, this is what you do and this is what you don't. I mean, I know myself, I've learned from, the, from Judge Goldberg and some of the other Superior Court judges that have been um, mentors to me. So I think that's very important to have people there that are willing to do it. Okay, we're about five months late, but uh, Rhode Island is uh, per, uh, poised to pass what they are calling a skinny budget, which I find ironic. A $12.5 billion budget is anything but skinny, but we understand some of that is federal money. Ed, you have looked at the state budget for a long time. What occurred to me is they're trying to, trying to institute as little pain as possible, where the governor said a couple of months ago, if we don't get this influx of cash from Washington, there is going to be some pain. There's no layoffs. There's no furloughs, which, you know, we don't have anything against state workers, but, you know, there's, there hasn't been a shared sacrifice on the state end. I wonder what you think about this to get us to the next step. It's, it's just kicking down the can down the road. Um, the state's credit card is maxed out. They're using federal money to try to stop the, uh, fill up the gaps. They've destroyed the small businesses in the state, many of them, and that's, I don't see how you turn around from that. That has to be job one, I think, is to get the economy going so you have the tax revenue to fund, fund the government. And I think this budget avoids hard decisions. It, on, a, on a good note, it preserves the car tax cut, which is very important to, to sort of poor working people. 
um, but it's 36% higher than two years ago. That's just unsustainable spending. Yeah, I also wonder if they're going to go back uh, to the, it was originally 10 million. It got up to 12.5 because of the influx of federal money. Rob, it's, you know, it's kind of pay me now, it's pay me later. I also wonder in the larger context of this, whether you think there's going to be more federal money because it's red states and blue states trying to deal with this sea of red ink. I do, Jim, and 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 uh, I'm a I'm a stubborn optimist on this, but as you know, I was predicting the federal money to come in in August, and I'm, it's four or five months later. You and the governor, you've been predicting it for like but, five months. I do believe, thanks to the thanks to the bipartisan group of senators, including Mitt Romney, um, who came together on about a nine hundred billion dollar package. There, there is a, a between between Senator McConnell and Speaker Pelosi. They're trying to figure out how to screw it up. But I, I do think there's a good, I think there is a re reasonably good chance of, of a short-term package. And I think you're going to see a, a additional stimulus in the fall. So while I agree we're kicking the can down the road on this, I think right now kicking the can down the road actually makes a little bit of sense because we don't know the ultimate picture. And the worst thing we could do right now, especially as Ed points out with the economy down, is lay off a bunch of state workers or lay off anybody that we don't have to lay off. Um, and and so, so I do think it's sensible. It, it's probably, you know, the path of least resistance. So I get the fact that it's, you know, it, it's not exactly courageous, but I do think it's kind of smart. To, let, let's see what the final federal numbers are. Um, Unfortunately, they're laying off the private sector, which funds the public sector. The, the private sector is suffering all the pain. But that's right. not a budget I, I, decision. That's not a budget decision. And I, I hear what you're saying. That's a separate argument. I'm not. I'm not disagreeing with you completely. But go ahead, Eva. I'm sorry. Well, I, you know, I, I think Rob and Ed, I, I and Jim. I think the biggest thing is um, Lieutenant Governor uh, Dan McKee has been out there pretty loud talking about let's release this money and get it out to small businesses. We're hearing stories, and you know, really the good work that you've done, Jim, through the the Hummel report. Um, about people that are suffering right now. So let's release some of this money and get it into the economy now. I think I agree with Rob on the budget. I think there's no way between now and the end of the year to have a discussion and with COVID and, and all of the restrictions that are out there and that are going on um, to have a real genuine discussion about budget issues. So keep it status quo at this point. Um, you know, if you say kick the can down the road, just just at this point in time, just maintain where we are and uh, let's have real robust discussions when we can open up the government again and open up the legislature and have hearings and do everything that we usually do in a, in a regular year. Uh, but we need to get this money out um, into, into the public now. We need to do it streamlined and in, in an easy way. It reminds me a little bit about the UHIP issue. Remember, um, I can remember being on this pro program mm -hmm. saying, you know, put everybody in the convention center and let them let them file whatever check. they have to file and get in yeah. there and then get the check. Yeah. Um, you know, let's do it in a robust way that really affects the, the mom and pop shops. I mean, I'm one of them. So I can I can tell you, yeah, you know, everybody's everybody's uh, out there holding their breath. And um, Rob, what you I know. think what I think Ed was alluding to, and I've made the point on this show, is that if the governor had started, I understand layoffs are because then it goes to unemployment. If the governor had started in March, April, May, a one day a week layoff or a one and not a layoff, a furlough 
one day every you know every two weeks it would have sent the signal hey we're sharing the pain too and honestly if you add all that money up with the state budget that could have been tens of millions of dollars that she would have at her disposal now and i will tell you i don't think any state worker given everything that's going on would have said oh boy you know i have to get you know i have to take a 20 percent pay cut if they keep their jobs and their benefits that's all i think the point that we're making is a little bit of shared sacrifice well you know i look at that but i uh, listen, hindsight's twenty twenty on everything. This has been such a crazy year. It's really hard for me. Uh, and, you know, I've been very critical of the governor at different points on different issues. It's really hard for me to look back um, during the pandemic and say, shoulda, coulda done this. I look forward and say, you've got this bucket of money, get it released into the community so that mom and pop shops can survive and be here when we get a vaccine and whether it's in the spring or whether it's next summer, but these mom and pop shops aren't gonna be there anymore. Rob, what about furloughs? I, I don't think that would have been, I understand what you're saying and I, I, and I, I generally agree with the principle of shared sacrifice. I don't think that would have been wise. Why take, why take money out of a state economy, even if it's just a minimal amount of yeah, money? Yeah, but you had $600 extra from the federal government That'd all be, those months that they could have taken advantage, advantage of. And so could have everybody else. But what you want, what you want to do when, when you have a huge economic contraction is put money in. So I just think as a macroeconomic sort of use the big macroeconomic word, but it's a macroeconomic item. That doesn't make a ton of sense. I, I, I do agree, and, 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 and to echo um, what Eva said about, about the work you've done, Jim, on, on, on highlighting the, the aid that hasn't gotten to small business. I think February, March, April, much more important than whether we had a, a symbolic furlough for the state workers, would have been to more aggressively help small businesses. Here, here in Rhode Island, and I think that's if, if you if you want to look back on on in, in, on the governor's performance, which I think in a very difficult situation has been pretty good. I think that's one one place you can highlight where where she where she clearly you know took a swing and a miss. Ed, you get the last word on this. I just think um, the policies on COVID nineteen are wrongheaded, and it's done enormous damage to the state's economy, and it's almost like we're going to leave a lunar landscape here and then expect to fund the state. It's not a sensible approach. Okay, let's let's stay with COVID. Uh, we are taping on a Thursday morning. The governor has moved her briefings, weekly briefings, to Thursday afternoon, so we don't have the benefit of that. But we can pretty much guess what she's going to say today. I don't think that the pause two-week pause is going to end anytime soon. The numbers just look horrible. And Rob, it's, it, look, Rob, let me start with you. It's interesting that, you know, Rhode Island was ahead in so many ways, the testing and we flattened the curve and all that. And I think from my point of view at the Vets Auditorium, when I go to these briefings, briefings, I think the state officials are just kind of flummoxed as to what is driving this. They're trying to more and more restrictions and the numbers are going up. So there's, I know there's a little bit of exasperation. I agree, I, and it's a very difficult situation. I hear what, what Ed's saying. On the other hand, our hospital beds are full, and we have field hospitals, so so they're not easy. They're not easy decisions to make here. I I, I think the why we're doing worse now. I think basically, if you look at some of the polling that's been done around the country, Rhode Islanders as a whole are a little more resistant. Not greatly, but a little more resistant to mask wearing. They're a little more resistant to. Uh, 
to not gathering with families. If you just look at the numbers, I think you add that all up. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not letting the governor off the hook here, but I think if you add all those stuff up, you can talk about population density, but there's other states that are very dense that are doing better than us right now. But, but I think this is something where we can look to the government, that's fine, but we gotta look to each one of us and we've got to step our own, step up our own personal behavior. Everybody, you know, it, it, I think we're all exhausted by by all this. Understandably, we want to see our families, we want to do all those things. Um, we want to go out, but 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 I think it really is up to every individual Rhode Islander, like it is up to every individual American. And the Rhode Island surge is clearly part of a big national surge and a complete abdication of of any national responsibility by the federal government. But if we're going to solve the problem here, it's in each of our hearts and minds. It's, it's not something, I, I, I agree, I think they're flummoxed because it's not something government can solve. I don't think more shutdowns are going to solve it either. I agree with Ed. But if we're not going to shut, shut down, that means each of us are, are coming to wear masks, to socially distance, and to, and to make some sacrifices about who we see and who we don't see. Eva? Um, wow. That's, uh, it's, it's hard to unpack this. I. I think that um, I part of me agrees with Rob. I think it's a really, really tough thing. I mean, I know I'm not hosting the Feast of the Seven Fishes for the first <laughs> time in forever um, for that reason. We have not um, congregated in big groups, but um, I don't know. I don't know the answer to it. I really don't. I don't understand the, the, the science. I just know that it's deadly and that we have to be careful. I don't like the fact that she has these weekly briefings with you know, basically she tells us what to do. And then, you know, Nicole, um, uh, Alexander Scott comes on and, and repeats it. Um, you know, I, I don't think that that serves anything right now. Um, and I think that shutdowns are not the way to go. I think that individual responsibility is, listen, we, we've had other pandemics before, you know, it's just, you have to, you have to use smarts and you have to go from there. But you know, like for instance, why are the why are the schools closed? I don't understand that. You know, I listen to I listen to NEA talk about the schools and how dangerous it is, and then I look at the numbers and I say, kids are more likely to get it at home when they're with big families and um, multi generations living in the same household and what have you than at school. So I, I don't understand uh, some of the decisions that are that are being made. And um, like I said, I just hope and pray for the best. Ed. Uh, what's the definition of insanity? Uh, doing the same thing over and over and over and expecting a different result. And we're insane. I mean, I agree with Eva. The schools should be open. A child is more likely to be killed by a lightning strike, far more likely than to be killed by COVID. We have found that this disease leaves, generally leaves young people alone. And uh, in fact, the flu is far more dangerous to children, but we don't shut the schools for the flu. Uh, they should be in school. It's, I think it's cruel and abusive to children what we're doing to them. Uh, I know of one girl in Providence who's gained an enormous amount of weight. She slipped from an A straight A student to a D student. She's totally depressed. This is cruel to children what we're doing. It is not solving the problem. In Rhode Island, yes, we have a, a number of cases have gone through the roof. It's called cases, but it's not cases. It's positive tests. And, and many of these are asymptomatic. People don't even have it. So it's, it's uh, it, what we're doing is crazy. We're destroying our economy over nothing. It's 99.99% recovery rate for most people. It's, 
what we're doing is just stoking fear and not solving the problem. We should be protecting the most vulnerable. I mean, the average age, I think, of, of death from COVID is 81. These yeah, and, and you know, I, I was... I was going to I was going to point that out. I think that if you look at where we could put resources and, you know, we're spending so much time and talk about schools, but we we know that CNAs work in two and three different nursing homes. Right. We know that um, that's where the congregate living is really where it happens. So let's just focus on where it is instead of looking at some guy that owns a gym, uh, you know, with people coming in trying to exercise because they're at home with their kids <laughs> trying to teach them and run and work from home and what have you so they're in trying to exercise and now you close the gym down so oh, you know i think we can do a focused approach to this um that's that's done you know in a in a more thoughtful way than to just say okay let's close everybody down for instance why can i go and get my hair and nails done but i can't go and exercise i'm uh, breathing Bobby, i'm sitting closer to the person rob go ahead you get the last word on this oh cool last word i love that um i'd say two things one is I, I think i think with all due respect we're minimizing this a bit um the hospitals are full <laughs> we no, are they're full our, every time they're full no, no, at this they're, time of year they're this not this full we don't set up field hospitals every time this year we don't postpone well, we're setting up field hospitals to, to isolate the covid 19 people right right but, but they're they're but no not just to isolate the people that need hospitalization the but state not data shows that icu levels are basically flat uh deaths are basically flat and also ventilators are basically flat what's gone up is hospitals deaths are not flat but let me finish i was supposed to get the last well, one state I, I do appreciate your uh, I, I do appreciate your i will agree to disagree on the facts uh for a second but but my, my point is this is is um we're at, we're at nearly 300 deaths nationally we're at 1500 deaths this isn't like the flu and, 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 and there is a symptomatic spread. And, and where it's been tried to just protect the vulnerable countries like Sweden, they backed off because it hasn't worked. So this is a complicated, difficult problem. I think we can, I don't think we should go back to shutdown. I agree on that. But let's not minimize the big public health problem. Talk to any doctor, because I have. Talk to all the people working in, working in emergencies during an intensive care. And they're going to tell you they're going to tell you a very different picture than, than the i talk to them and i also look at the state department of health data i so think do you I. have to look at actual data not just I, make I, so up. do i and i think i think you're with all due respect i think you're minimizing this greatly um well that's your opinion but the data shows something else the data does not show something else but we'll, we'll, oh, have, to, okay. we'll have to argue this in another <laughs> session it really doesn't show something else. i urge readers to look at uh, the department of health data I, I i urge readers to do that as well and look at the number of deaths and look at the field hospitals and and this this isn't business as usual here in rhode island to say it is is, is it's not business a, as usual creating a very misleading I, I i didn't say it's business as usual you, you, i said it's two years ago our hospitals were filled with the flu at this time of year, there are uh, issues with pulmonary, uh, with uh, breathing problems and with illnesses that affect uh, the breathing system. This is, this is common with this time of year. And what we're seeing now is hospitalizations are up, but this disease, we're doing much better than in the spring um, dealing with it. We are in terms of, I agree, we've learned how to treat it we, we, and, and there's less mortality. But if you look at the overall state situation and you're a policymaker and you've got full beds and you have field hospitals, you're, you're right. and you well, have hospitals are set up to operate at 
capacity at this they're, they're beyond capacity ed and, and the people that are working in them were beyond capacity i had to cover they're not beyond capacity they're pretty close hope oh, okay but they were higher two years ago when there was the flu but were there can we agree that it's focused can we agree that it's focused that we that there's certain groups of people that are more susceptible to this congregate living we know that if you're close to people so let's do a targeted approach i agree with you rob this is I not agree, i'm not minimizing it all i'm saying is that let's do it like a swat team let's go in in a targeted way and really attack the problem where it is i mean let's let's look at housing let's look at how, the much bigger picture housing how do homeless people um uh, socially distance. How do people that are living in, in multi-generational house social distance? So we have a bigger issue in Rhode Island than just COVID. This is just highlighting what and putting a spotlight on what our real issues are. You know, I, I look at that aspect. I look at the food insecurity. I look at people that are that are just trying to get by every day. Let's target it. Let's talk, let's not close the gyms and just do it with a broad brush. Let's target it. Let's use that money we have and go out there in the areas that really need it. That's all I'm saying. We should protect the vulnerable, the people who are very at risk, which are the very old and very sick. Those the only the way to protect the risk. vulnerable though, and, and this time out, I appreciate if you let me finish because you've interrupted me four or five times, which is fine. Um, we, can protect, we can protect the vulnerable um, but the only way to protect the vulnerable is, is and, and the people in nursing homes will tell you, is if you control the community-wide spread at the same time. If you don't control the community-wide spread, it's going to get back into the nursing homes. So it's both, I agree, no shutdowns, but then all the more important for everyone to practice social distancing, for the right. consistent public health message, and for us not to minimize how serious this is. I urge people to look at the facts and the data and not be swept up by this panic narrative. But isn't one of the problems, Ed and Rob and Eva, that I haven't gotten a good number on, let's say, just for discussion purposes, you have 100 hospital beds. How many of those are, so they close the hospitals to, well, elective surgery, but some people had heart issues and, you know, knee replacements and whatever. That got closed last spring. Now, so if you have 100 beds, how many of those are dedicated right to the regular surgery that's got to keep the hospital afloat and how many, so I agree with you, Rob, or Ed, that, the, that it's beginning to overflow a little bit, but what, so do they then need to shift and say, we're going to accommodate more COVID? It's economics versus health at this point for some of these hospitals, is it not? Yeah, hospitals are set up to operate at capacity at this time of year. That's their economic model. And that's what's uh, pretty much happening. It's, it's not, uh, I don't think we should scream with panic about this. I mean, we're, we're dealing with a, a pandemic, we're dealing with a deadly disease, but it's something like what, 14% of the patients in the hospital have COVID? I mean, it's not, that's not a, a something that we should uh, close down our whole society about. This is something we have to deal with rationally. All right, Rob, I, I truly am going to give you the last word because you know what? We've blown through I got blown you. through outrages, but you know what? It's a good discussion. Yeah. Rob, you have the last minute. Good. Oh, I love that, Jim. I love that. I, I figure I'll get 15 seconds here. So I'm, <laughs> so I'm, going, to try to be, I'm going to try to be brief. No one's panicking. It's a straw man. We shouldn't panic. You sound like the president. You know, we shouldn't panic. We shouldn't worry. You know. That no one's panicking. The facts are, and people look at the health data, but also talk to doctors. 
Two years ago, we weren't calling for extra volunteers in the hospitals. Two years ago, we didn't have field hospitals. This is not the same situation. To say it is, 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 is incredibly misleading. We shouldn't- I didn't say that. Let me finish. Let me okay, finish. but you're misrepresenting what I, I, I do, said. I Go ahead, 30, 20 said. seconds, Rob. Go ahead, wrap it up. That word. You've interrupted me 10 or 15 times here. Rudy, wrap it up. Um, the, um, so what I would say is yes, but that means it's incumbent on all of us to do our part. Any targeted effort, the, the, the people have tried just targeted efforts in other countries and states, it hasn't worked. So there's no easy answers here, but it's up to each individual. Rob, uh, you know what? We have a new bonus feature called Lively Extra. When 30 minutes is not enough, and we're going to have you go online right after this show because we're going to continue the discussion. Eva and Rob and Ed, thank you so much for joining us. Folks, join us back here next week. Again, if you want to catch more, go online right now at ripbs.org slash lively, and we'll give that to you, and we'll be back with another full show here next week. Have a great week. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... For more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS.